Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Foresight's Policy Dispatch podcast, your guide to the big and sometimes lesser known energy and climate policies shaping the world in which we live. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. Now, Foresight may well be Europe-based, but as we sure know by now, the energy transition certainly is not. Aside from the heavily forested nations of Bhutan, Panama and Suriname, which are not exactly applicable examples to bigger, more polluting countries, nobody has yet ratcheted their emissions down to a net zero level. That's the holy grail of climate policy for the European Union and many of its partners around the world. This year's UN Climate Summit, which will aim to encourage countries to move further along that net zero pathway, will be held in November in Egypt, marking the fifth time that the COP meeting has been hosted in an African country. The African continent boasts massive energy potential, both good, cheap renewables like solar and wind could thrive if given the right conditions, and bad, Fossil fuel reserves of oil and gas are a tempting, untapped gold mine for many governments. Moreover, Africa's population is predicted to nearly double from the current 1.3 billion inhabitants to 2.5 billion in 2050. Its population would near that of Asia's by the end of the century, illustrating what a massive challenge energy supply will pose in both the short and long term. That is, of course, not to mention the continent's increased exposure to the very worst effects of climate change. So the continent stands at a crossroads. One path is green, the other brown. What will the policymakers of Africa's 54 countries do? What do they need to make the green choice? And how can the rest of the world, particularly Europe, best help? I'm joined today by Salim Fakir, the executive director of the African Climate Foundation, to learn more about this issue. Salim, thank you so much for joining us for uh, one of these first episodes of Policy Dispatch. Uh, As I said in my introduction, we're going to be focusing uh, on Africa in this particular episode, what policies we can uh, glean from that continent, how they link with Europe, how they're going to be looking in the future, so on and so forth. Uh, Personally, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, We'll get cracking, I suppose, as uh, I've promised that these episodes will be nice and concise and digestible for our uh, listeners. So I guess we'll just leap in with with um, perhaps linking uh, Europe climate and energy policies to those of Africa. At the moment, of course, uh, Russia's war in Ukraine still ongoing has had a huge impact on um, Europe's energy sector. The European Union has gone uh, to other countries looking for uh, gas and energy contracts that can replicate those it has with Russia. Um, And of course, Africa is a part of that um, policy puzzle at the moment. Countries like Nigeria, Morocco, Algeria, so on, are are sort of on the radar, as it were, to either become new suppliers or increase the amount of energy they provide to Europe. Uh, To kick us off, I suppose I would ask you what you think of those policies at the moment, what dangers we would be able to see from them being implemented um, and whether or not this term that we've seen at the moment, energy colonialism, um, is something we need to be um, mindful of. Uh, So what's your take on that? Uh, So I think uh, uh, the Russian war, uh, well, the war in Ukraine basically uh, has, uh, I think, uh, 
really reorientated uh, the uh, way we are, are starting to uh, think of, of uh, the relationship between uh, clean energy transitions and uh, trying to bring down the global uh, uh, levels of uh, carbon emissions uh, in a sense that uh, it may have the effect of actually delaying uh, what was uh, moving, in, particularly in the European context with uh, Fit for 55, the European Green Deal and so on, uh, a lot of uh, what I would say political momentum behind uh, a more faster-paced uh, energy transition, certainly within the European context. And that meant uh, a dramatic shift from from uh, coal and uh, there would have been an interim period in which uh, gas would have been used because of uh, Europe's uh, uh, dependency on gas, particularly Russian gas. Uh, but to substitute that with uh, renewable energy and uh, hydrogen and also electric vehicles and other technology uh, investments that, that Europe uh, would have had to make. Uh, the Ukraine war in many respects has forced Europe to backtrack, uh, if you want, uh, on its uh, commitments that we'll make that we, they were starting to, to build out since 2020. Uh, and there is, of course, the uh, period of the winter coming up and particularly uh, Germany, which uh, actually consumes the largest share of uh, European gas. There is a need for uh, reducing dependency on gas and looking elsewhere for that. And the African continent, which has a strong proximity to Europe, has been the place where uh, people have uh, uh, looked for alternative sources of gas and to expand gas pipelines and exports of LNG. But uh, the continent that will, uh, the country that will benefit the most from is actually the US uh, and uh, potentially also countries like Qatar, uh, Azerbaijan and others, and uh, Australia for that matter. So it looks like gas is now uh, trumping, uh, leading the way in uh, uh, in this uh, uh, energy transition built around this, uh, a stronger need for energy security as the first priority. Uh, but hopefully we won't have a similar situation as the oil crisis in the 1970s, where that woke up the world to uh, look at alternatives. Then oil prices came down and uh, stopped all some of the innovation and uh, investments that were starting to go into alternatives. Uh, we hope that this time around that uh, the deals that have been constructed uh, for other uh, sources of gas uh, that uh, need to meet the European security, energy security needs, that that won't be a stumbling block for increasing investments uh, in the alternative uh, energy uh, uh, needs that we need to really fast track given the, the, the situation around uh, climate change and uh, having to meet uh, net zero targets, which are gaining traction. 
I mean, COP27 is coming up soon in November. It's going to be held in Egypt. Um, is that going to be a real crunch moment, you think, for um, these, so we say, good policies to be um, sort of hammered out, hashed out by, by different countries, the European countries that want uh, to source gas from Africa and, of course, the African countries that want to provide it? And what do you, what do you think of COP27 as this, this big moment, basically? Uh, I, I think uh, it's still... Uh to be seen uh, whether COP27 uh, will really, uh, you know, uh, produce the kind of commitments that were made at at, uh, uh, COP26, uh, particularly around uh, large structural kind of investments that we saw uh, that is starting to happen around the South African Just Energy Transition Partnership. There are similar kinds of uh, uh, proposed uh, initiatives for Nigeria, including Egypt and Senegal, and also in countries like Indonesia, Vietnam, and other places. So I do think that those kinds of uh, country platforms, which are large-scale absorbers of climate finance that are built around a a strong investment plan that... uh, materially uh, bring about the kind of significant shift that is necessary uh, for these countries to phase out of coal and certainly out of gas in in the future, uh, that uh, the global community rallies behind that and uh, uh, COP27 would be an important milestone to continue to reinforce that. So that's uh, at the global level. At the second level, I think that uh, Africa in itself, given this is an African COP, uh, requires considerably uh, larger amounts of uh, cheaper sources of finance uh, to upscale its need for expanding uh, 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 the renewable uh, renewables program on the continent. Um, in the light of the fact that there are uh, there is a dearth of uh, energy supply. 600 million people don't have access to cheap and affordable uh, electricity. Uh, many parts of the continent uh, cannot benefit from fossil fuels. It will be too too expensive and it will have to be imported from somewhere else. Uh, but there is vast solar resources which uh, remain untapped. The largest... Uh, Renewable projects are hydro projects, uh, but we want uh, greater commitments to solar and wind uh, projects on the continent, which is not happening at the scale that is necessary. In fact, Africa is way behind the rest of the world. And uh, the key factor is not uh, the availability of the resources. Many countries also have uh, fairly good policies, uh, but the availability of uh, uh, cheaper sources of finance will go a long way uh, in enabling these countries to upscale uh, uh, their renewable pr- uh, renewable program, uh, which uh, is very promising and uh, would certainly, in my view, uh, certainly from the recent uh, evidence that we see, would be certainly cheaper than gas-to-power projects, uh, certainly on the continent. And uh, that is something that I think uh, should be championed at this COP. And there would be a huge interest, uh, not only uh, from African countries, but also outside of Africa, 
because the African market is still underdeveloped for uh, renewables uh, investments. And we can look at them at different types, uh, uh, large utility-scale utility investments, uh, microgrids, and uh, uh, more uh, smaller-scale uh, renewables uh, uh, initiatives that uh, can uh, bring about the, the, the uh, needs uh, to, uh, to help uh, uh, support the needs of the continent in being able to access uh, cheaper sources of energy. So COP27, in my view, should uh, be a lot about uh, new types of energy transitions on the continent that lower the dependence on fossil fuels for the long term. Mm -hmm. Picking up that point on, on renewable energy policies, I mean, I was struck by a number of statistics in my, my preparation for this podcast about um, wind power in particular. Um, some estimates say that Africa's wind power capacity is less than 1% of, of global capacity, which, of course, for a, a continent of 54 countries is strikingly low. Um, but other reports say that the potential for wind is something like you know 10 times what Africa would need. Um, so, as you say, I mean, the main hurdle, as you say, is is finance, cheap finance. Is there any other hurdles to these policies? It's, of course, difficult to generalize between countries, but is there a lack of know-how, a lack of expertise that, um, that other countries could provide? Or, or is it simply a, a case of getting the right finance to the right, the right avenues? I can only draw from, first, let me say that the uh, issue of wind is very interesting. It doesn't get the kind of attention it deserves. Uh, certainly in the policy circles and in the public mind. In fact, I had the opportunity to speak to the Global Wind Energy Council very recently, and they uh, pointed to the fact that uh, when people on the continent talk about renewable energy, it's usually hydro, solar, geothermal, uh, etc. Uh, but wind power doesn't get the level of attention uh, it should get, uh, given that you have both uh, vast onshore uh, wind resources uh, at very significant wind speeds and offshore. Uh, uh, there is huge traction in, in South Africa, of course, uh, through its Renewable Energy Independent Power Producers Program, which was uh, very successful. Uh, it uh, is now going through rounds five and six, uh, up to about 4,000 megawatts, which includes both uh, solar and wind. Uh, so in South Africa, there has been, uh, you know, exploitation of wind resources far more significantly than elsewhere on the continent. Uh, so a lot more needs to be done around uh, educating policymakers, etc. Uh, but if you designed a very good... Uh, program, uh, uh, independent power producers uh, program for purchasing, particularly utility scale, uh, uh, you could uh, uh, design it in a way that uh, attracts the right type of uh, uh, original equipment manufacturers, uh, 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 companies that can actually build these uh, wind and solar plants. They will bring expertise. You can align your universities to uh, have training programs to uh, support uh, over time, uh, build the skills and capability within the country. And South Africa, uh, obviously, it's very different from the rest of the continent, uh, was able to do that by 
uh, repurposing existing engineering skills to suit a growing demand for those skills in the renewable sector. Uh, you needed to have, uh, you certainly need experienced companies to be able to do this, and they will be foreign in the early phase. But if you were able to uh, uh, align your uh, national utilities or other flagship companies behind joint ventures with overseas companies and uh, do these renewables programs over a very long period, I would uh, suggest over 20 years, uh, a lot of localization can happen on the continent. Uh, it's not insurmountable. Uh, I would not say that uh, the early shortage of skills or lack of technical knowledge or even the fact that you don't have experience uh, local companies uh, should persuade you that that if uh, you take, took a longer view, a longer-term view, that uh, this should persuade you that you can't build that capability in the continent. Uh, South Africa has proven that you can do that quite rapidly within the first four uh, windows. We have managed to do that very successfully. And we could have sustained more local uh, capability and manufacturing of some of the components for wind and solar if the government did not stop the renewables program uh, uh, in uh, in between uh, around four and five and six. Uh, those processes were delayed. Round five was delayed by four years. That had did, did a lot of damage to uh, the industry. So the important thing is to have a long-term vision, be consistent in the rollout of uh, 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 renewables and solar pro, uh, technology program and then align the right uh, institutional capability and uh, companies behind uh, early investments that will happen by foreign companies, but uh, they don't have to dominate uh, the industry in the long term. And we should design the programs in such a way that there are ease uh, local participation in uh, these uh, programs over time. I, I don't think it's feasible to have uh, just foreigners dominate, uh, foreign companies dominate uh, the sector over the longer term. They have to build uh, uh, participation uh, uh, and ownership of, of local uh, players as well, whether they be state or private uh, companies, uh, in order to ensure that uh, the renewables program has long-term legitimacy and uh, is seen as being uh, increasingly indigenized uh, in one form or the other. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try a subscription for 30 days for just 29 euros. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. Just to pick back up on the, the Just Transition Energy Partnership that you mentioned earlier, uh, which really was, I think, one of the main big 
policy outcomes from from COP last year. I mean, for any of our listeners who haven't heard of this initiative before, it was this big partnership signed between South Africa, the European Union, United Kingdom, United States, and other countries, uh, which promised uh, billions of euros in pledged financing, knowledge transfers, risk sharing, uh, quite a big deal, basically. It, It seemed like a template that, if successful, could be replicated in other countries that needed to uh, decarbonize their economies and so on. Um, nearly 12 months on from, from that um, agreement being signed, um, what's your, your, how do you rate it? Has there been any progress made? Um, can it indeed be used as a template for other countries? Um, what are its successes and, and failures in, in your mind? Sure. There are a couple of things. The, the first is that uh, there was a political announcement and pledge at Glasgow, at COP27. It took a bit of uh, uh, two or three months before the actual process of negotiating uh, the pledge into a finance deal. Uh, That really only started uh, around late March, if not April. So uh, the process itself is very uh, new. And uh, uh, I do think that the process is going fairly well. Uh, there are, of course, differences of opinion about uh, uh, the investment plan, uh, the nature and the characteristic of the finance being provided. Remember, South Africa, uh, like other African countries, uh, also has a debt burden that it needs to reduce, particularly with the main utility called uh, ESCOM, which has a significant uh, debt. Uh, which the state is now starting to take over. So we do need cheaper sources of finance. Uh, The early idea was that uh, they should be highly concessional uh, and also include a significant grant portion uh, that is able to lower the cost of finance, uh, but also be able to provide, uh, particularly the grant portion, uh, 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 to be able to use that uh, to support the potential displacement of work workers and other interests uh, in the coal mining areas. So uh, in August, I think of uh, mid-August this year or late August this year, you'll see uh, a, a draft investment plan being put together and by uh, closer to the COP, uh, there will be a final investment plan uh, between the South African government and the the funders, which is in this case would be uh, US, uh, UK, uh, the European Union, uh, Germany and France around the $8.5 billion deal. Uh, So I think from that uh, uh, political side and in terms of uh, moving forward, uh, progress is being made. Uh, It has fired up the imagination in terms of how to try to uh, link the delivery of uh, nationally determined contributions uh, through a country platform model, uh, which is in many respects a way of a, a way of aligning uh, political will with uh, the right technical support and the, uh, additional backing uh, of international uh, climate finance mechanisms, which are available through bilateral and multilateral. Uh, institutions as part of the advance and rich e- uh, economies obligation to provide those additional resources 
to countries that commit to, whether it's a net zero target or uh, deeper decarbonization, but cannot do that on the basis of their own resources, but can catalyze uh, the early phase of this process uh, through international climate finance support. So that I think that model is now being explored in countries outside of South Africa on the continent and uh, certainly in Southeast Asia. Uh, I think the most important challenge for uh, the JETP is the the way in which the money is being used to invest in the critical infrastructure that can facilitate a rapid transition uh, to clean energy, uh, particularly grid technology, repurposing of coal plants and expansion of renewables, that that funding be used to also crowd in other sources of public and private money because the 8.5 billion deal is insufficient to be conclusive enough to support even the short-term and medium-term objectives of uh, the energy transition that South Africa has to embark upon. The total cost of uh, meeting net zero targets by 2050 is around $250 billion. So you can see that $8.5 billion is a a small uh, amount compared to the broader needs. It's unlikely that and we cannot expect the international community to provide all those funds. But if you were able to use the $8.5 billion in the right way and attract other sources of funds, uh, South Africa can very easily and rapidly uh, move in the direction of achieving net zero goals. Uh, lastly, I think the biggest challenge is the ensuring uh, that uh, money is used optimally, that South Africa is able to attract other sources of funding, and it is able to deal with the just aspect of the transition, which will be a very important aspect of the investments that are, that are made. Uh, that is a highly political issue and has to be met, managed very sensitively, and it needs to be done in the areas that are most uh, likely to be affected, particularly coal mining workers, communities that are dependent on the coal mining industry, uh, and to be able to ensure uh, that the expansion of electricity uh, through clean energy solutions uh, continues to be affordable and available to the poorest uh, in South Africa. Okay, Salim. So I wanted to also ask you about um, policies elsewhere, specifically in the United States. Um, This Inflation Reduction Act that the Biden administration has um, magically managed to get through um, the legislative process over there. It commits hundreds of billions of dollars for um, climate-linked projects over there. Um, Of course, that's all domestic. Um, But if we think about all of these hundreds of billions of dollars that have been pledged to um, developing countries for climate action, many of which are in Africa, do you think this marks some sort of mindset change in the funding of climate projects, first, obviously, domestically and then internationally? What's your take on on what the Americans have um, finally managed to do, shall we say? So I think the situation in America is largely dependent on... uh, uh, you know who dominates Congress and and uh, the administration, uh, administration, particularly executive arm, and we have seen that uh, the U.S. has moved from uh, positive and constructive climate policy to uh, effectively, you know, in a Trump era, we could say destruction of climate policy, and 
I think that's what uh, Biden has been battling with because in during the Obama era, they recognized that uh, positive climate diplomacy is very important. And Obama was very critical in ensuring the Paris Agreement uh, made progress. So uh, we can see this as a positive uh, turn, but a lot depends on what happens in the next election because things can be reversed. This is, uh, the irony of the U.S. being in a democratic uh, country, it can't, can't hold onto a common and persistent uh, policy thread. So that's the challenge I, f- I feel they will have. Uh, obviously, it's good news. We don't know whether it's still good news for support outside of the U.S. And the Congress, uh, I haven't gone into the detail of the Inflation Reduction Act, but uh, based on past experience, uh, generally uh, anything that supports U.S. first and U.S. interests uh, and U.S. domestic uh, capacity and industry that will get funding. Anything outside of it, the U.S. Congress would be less, uh, you know, uh, uh, in favor of that. So uh, let's see what kind of money does flow uh, outside to uh, initiatives outside of uh, the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, just turning to um, sort of how policies are crafted and implemented in Africa, I suppose if you take the example of the European Union, uh, it has all of this legislative power to set climate policies, 55% net reductions by 2030, for example, is the big policy at the moment. Um, I guess the closest equivalent Africa has to that is the African Union. But as I understand, it doesn't have this legislative power. Um, what do you think the AU's role should be in setting policies in this sector? Can it do more? Or, or is it really not the, the forum, shall we say, where um, big changes can be made? Uh, the AU does have a, uh, I would say, a, a capacity to, to lead, uh, certainly in thought leadership and in uh, defining uh, uh, programs for its own uh, various uh, AU institutions. Mm-hmm. It has the political capacity. It doesn't have legislative and executive power, of course. Uh, but uh, it, it would be a very influential uh, body in, uh, in relationship to, for example, Africa-Europe partnerships and, and also partnership with China. And it can open the way for new kinds of investments, uh, particularly in the uh, renewable sector and so on. And that would be then... Uh, uh, facilitated at a, at a regional level and uh, implemented at a, at a country level. So those kind of collective uh, political approaches are necessary and the AU is set up for that. Uh, but the AU is not in a position to provide directives and uh, be in a position of uh, uh, you know, uh, ensuring compliance to, to uh, specific executive uh, uh, you know, law which it doesn't have the capacity to do. So uh, I do think that EU uh, uh, is a little bit behind on the, the climate policy side. It has issued a new policy, which is, in my view, a very good document. It now has to generate uh, the momentum behind that, not only just politically, but in terms of getting the various constitutive, uh, constitutive uh, bodies of the EU to, to work in sync uh, particularly around the implementation of of the uh, general uh, policy framework that has been put out. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you, Salim. I'd like to, to thank you for your time and, and talking to us about um, all of these different issues that are, that are happening in Africa at the moment, particularly like talking to you about how this long-term vision is really you know, necessary for um, things like renewables and, and to build sort of public support behind um, the green transition and so on. So again, thank you very much for joining us. No, no problem. Thank you also to the rest of you uh, for tuning into this episode. Of course, we'll be back every two weeks for more policy dispatches. So check the Foresight homepage for details on how to sign up if you haven't already. In the meantime, be sure to look out for the older podcast sibling of Policy Dispatch, What Matters, which is published in the weeks in between. Big thanks to my producer, Anna Gumbau. We'll recharge our batteries in time for the next episode, and we hope that you do too.